0: psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today we have a special guest on the podcast, Howard Ross. He wrote an interesting book recently, and I would just like him to introduce himself and explain his book and the premise of it. Howard, go for it.
1: Hi, Kirk. How are you? Um, yes, the book is called Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. And, um, and it was really, uh, Kirk, inspired by the sense of polarization that I had been feeling, and I know everybody else has been feeling over the course of the last couple of years, as we've seen our political system pulled farther and farther apart, and, and that's affected our social system. And one of the things that I became curious about, and my support person, uh, John Robert Tartaglione who helped a lot with the book as well, is why it is that we tend to tribalize the way we do and what we can do about it.
0: It's been something I've been giving a lot of thought to recently because, I don't know, I'm old enough to remember people saying a lot of things around political divisions over the last number of decades. And and when you actually look into re- through the research, they actually do find that there is a, and they look at it from a number of different ways, either the politicians in Congress or... The uh, voters, obviously, uh, there are ways of measuring this, which I won't go into, and partly because I don't really remember the methods. But <laughs> is they they found that uh, you know now it's like it compared to say twenty thirty years ago, there is a ever widening gap uh, between Democrats and Republicans in our society, conservatives, liberals, and there's been a lot of speculation, obviously, about that it's related to the internet and. Uh, maybe particular politicians or whatever. Uh, w- what do you think the reason is? Well, I think first of all, just
1: to, to affirm what you're saying, you know, one Pew study uh, was done specifically about this and showed dramatic polarization. And I think that you know, if we go back to times like you know, Vietnam War, for example, was a time when the country was really pulled apart. or civil rights, um, generally speaking, we were operating in a bell curve society. You had people on both extremes. But you had a lot of people who, based on a particular um, issue, would choose to align with one side or the other. So, for example, northern Republicans aligned with northern Democrats where civil rights was concerned, um, whereas southern Democrats and Republicans might have been on the other side of that equation. Uh, During the anti-war movement, you had the scoop Jackson Democrats who a pro-war. But you also had the McCluskey uh, Republicans who were against the war, even though predominantly Democrats were against the war and Republicans for it. So now I think what we've got is not so much an issue orientation where I might agree with you on gun rights, but disagree with you on civil rights, but agree with you on foreign policy, let's say. Um, But now it's more an identity orientation. It's you're one of those kind of people. And being one of, quote, those kind of people on the left or the right means we have to fall in line with certain belief systems that are very consistent. And I think that there's no question that the Internet and the media has a huge impact on this. Uh, We used to look at the same media sources and interpret them differently. Now we look at very different media sources that are already pre-interpreting information for us and, in fact, sometimes giving us different data. Um, We go on to Facebook or other social media forums, and we unfriend people who disagree with us and only get a constant flow of the same information. So in a way, we're participating in our own brainwashing.
0: Yeah. So what's the solution? Well, you know,
1: I say to people all the time, I think it's there's nothing wrong with having strong political points of view. I mean, I have strong political points of view. The problem is we've forgotten that they're points of view. We think it's truth. And if we're speaking truth, that means other people are lying. If we're good, then they're evil. And, and this is the real challenge is that we've forgotten that we are people who have different points of view rather than different people, different kinds of people or different tribes of people. Now, there's no question that there are people at the extreme who you can't reach, um, you know, I'm never going to reach out to a Richard Spencer or a David Duke and be able to connect with them on issues of race because they've, they've wedded their identities to being white supremacists, for, as an example. Um, but there are a whole lot of people who uh, voted for, um, let's say, President Trump, who do not see themselves in that way. And they voted that way because they were in a binary election. Um, where they had to choose one or the other. And the same exact thing is true, of course, on the other side. A lot of people who voted for Secretary Clinton, not because they were necessarily rabid supporters of hers or even even preferred her, but because when it came push to shove, comparing to the other was how they voted. And so I think we have to start by distinguishing supporters from the people they voted for. The fact that you voted for somebody doesn't mean that you agree with everything that they do or say. Then the second thing is to go out and reach out to some of those folks and start to make connections um, and to try to understand each other rather than always try to convince each other. I think that, you know, one of the tools that I included in the book is something that was actually originally created by a woman named Elizabeth Lesser, who was one of the co-founders of the Omega Institute up in Rhinebeck, New York. And it's called Take the Other to Lunch. And it's a very simple sort of inquiry technique that you could use with somebody who, let's say somebody you care about, you know, maybe a family member who just sees it, sees politics very differently than you do. And you just really want to connect with them and get an understanding of each other without necessarily trying to convince each other or browbeat each other. Um, And it asks four simple questions. The first is, you know, why do you feel the way you do? The second is, um, and it's a little bit more elaborated in the tool, but but just at the sort of a surface level. The second is, What's the fear or concern that you have that this other position triggers in you? And that's a really important one because fear is a generator of most human reaction. And if we can get down to what people are afraid of, then often we can find other ways to address those issues. The third is, what have you always wanted to ask somebody from that other side that you've never asked before? And then finally, the last one is to look and see if there's anything that you need to clean up, uh, things that you've said or things that you've... Um, jokes that you've participated in or things like that, do you realize now having listened to this new perspective are hurtful so that you can apologize for that and move forward with a clean slate and begin to create a new kind of relationship with that person?
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I uh, I guess I do a version of that as a therapist because when I have clients who might be Republican, it's my professional duty to understand where they're coming from and empathize and have positive regard for them. So uh, perhaps it, you know, makes it easier for me to uh, understand the other side of the aisle, so to speak. Um, but yeah, if everyone did that, and I totally agree. And I've, I came to that conclusion a long time ago as well, which is that uh, everyone's reacting out of fear and hurt.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And with the amount of political ridicule that is um, online and in tv shows and comedy acts and you know uh like i'm i'm a liberal i'm a progressive liberal and i live in progressive liberal seattle and uh my side my bubble has stephen colbert the daily show uh jimmy kimmel these kinds of people and 99 percent uh, or at least for stephen colbert their comedy is in ridicule of republicans and and it, there's things to ridicule for sure. At first, w- loved it, right? It's like, oh, the Daily Show. Yeah, let's, let's let us them have it. <laughs> but then as time went on, I, I started seeing this, this division and I, I started seeing it. I sort of took a step back and I said, okay, so us liberals are over here just laughing at Republicans. They're all racist and they're all stupid and they're all, you know, I would see the reaction from Republicans. I would see this reaction of, of anger and of uh, ridicule back, you know, calling us snowflakes and uh, communists Mm -hmm. and stupid in some other different way. As a, as a couple therapist, I I see things through this lens of attachment and through, um, you know, primary secondary emotions, which is like, okay, I'm seeing anger and I'm seeing ridicule in, on my couch between these two people. But I know that, Beneath that is hurt and and or fear. And so I'm looking across the aisle at the Republicans and I'm thinking, okay, underneath all that, um, you know, ridicule or anger or accusations must be hurt and fear. Where would that be coming from? huh it's probably coming from my side of the fence mm-hmm. we 're ridiculing them we 're calling them racist we're calling you know and I just thought like, whoa, we all have to stop this like yeah, uh, yeah. we're cre- we're creating each other 's monster, you know like we 're creating the the Republican monster, and the Republicans are creating the liberal monster and in, Until we see that and and stop this this childishness in, in my opinion. Uh, I, it's just going to go on and on and on. Well, yeah, I think I think you you know, look, I
1: I, I share your political view, you know your political uh, point of view, and so I and I'm on the other Washington. You know, I just live right outside of Washington D.C., so I'm on the other side of the country in a very liberal bastion here as well. Um, I think that there are a couple things that are important in in what you're saying, uh, Kirk. I think one is to recognize that we are and have been since nine eleven in essentially a collective post traumatic stress situation in our country and i think that we we haven't ever resolved that it's this low lying um, not that far under the surface tension that's get created in the sphere that's get that got created when all of a sudden the illusion of safety was the bubble of uh, the illusion of safety was popped i think that's important i think the second thing is it's very important for people to distinguish between a candidate and the people who support that candidate and that when a candidate runs for office whether it's hillary clinton or donald trump or you know, Joe Schmo, they're putting themselves up to be evaluated, to be um, to be judged, and and it's fair game to go after them because they've decided to play that role. But people who support those people have not necessarily done that; they're just having their opinion. And um, and I think that in a lot of cases, uh, we do ourselves a real disservice. I mean, one of the things that I did for the book, because you know I I, I am on the left side of the political equation, I went out and interviewed. It's now been over 100 people who voted for President Trump. And, um, and it was incredibly illuminating to, first of all, find out how non-monolithic they are. Um, secondly, to recognize that so many of them said exactly what you're talking about, Kirk, which is they said one of the things they're sick and tired of is liberals always putting them down. And, and at first, I have to admit, I was a little defensive and suspicious about that. But, but it's like a lot of things in life. Once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. And just one example, I, was, um, I posted something on Facebook uh, the day after, when Hillary Clinton's um, memoir was coming out of the campaign, I think it was called What Happened or something like that. Um, wh- she posted uh, like a chapter a day, and one of them was how Bernie had basically lost her the election. And, um, and so I posted the article on Facebook with just three words, not very helpful, just meaning that we should be coming together now, not continuing to battle this sort of internecine warfare within the party. And within minutes, I got a response from a friend of mine who's a Bernie or bust guy whose response was, who, by the way, has a, you know, a master's degree in engineering from University of Pennsylvania, whose reaction was she she should go to prison. And then seconds after that, this woman who was who assumed, I guess, that he was a Trump supporter, who is a liberal lawyer from some think tank in downtown D.C., who I'd never even met before, says to him, why don't you go back to your trailer park and talk to your mother, who's probably also your cousin? And I was stunned this happened in minutes, this interaction. And I responded to both of them and I said, can we ratchet this back a little bit? Like maybe people shouldn't go to prison until they're convicted of a crime. And by the way, can we find something other than bigoted elitist stereotypes to use? Not that, not that if he, if he was living in a trailer park, not that this point of view is invalid because of it. But I mean, it's just, it, it, I think it's indicative of exactly what you're talking about is what bomb can we throw at each other?
0: Yeah. And it, it just pains me to watch and, And I, again, I'm old enough to remember a time when, at least in my memory, it it just wasn't like that. And I, and I think it has to do with obviously the media and for at least my side of the aisle, it has to do with the Daily Show, Steve Colbert, whom I love (laughs) and uh, will watch occasionally. But when I'm watching it now, I either will sort of turn it off when it, becomes what i believe to be crossing a line mm-hmm. and or as i'm watching it i i try to say okay just remember this is just jokes and it's it's not uh something you you want to take as the truth and uh and if you're uh, a republican i'm uh, you know which i'm not in that echo chamber i, I i'm guessing it's Fox news or something. I don't even know. Maybe, maybe Rush Limbaugh. I I don't know who Republicans listen to, but some kind of conscientiousness around that of just like, okay. You know, the the thing that I, that I always try to say is if you oppose someone's voting practices, like Donald Trump vetoing something or promoting a a bill uh, or even an idea, um, then by all means, you know, state that vote. Uh, your conscience, uh, advocate, but this attacking of the, of the character of, uh, particularly the, like you say, the, the voters who are being thrown under the bus for a politician's, uh, uh you know, bad actions is, um, is not accurate and uh, contributing to this divide, which, Well, well. So let me ask you, Howard. You know, since we're both liberals, and we can, I assume, look at Republicans and say, "Well, I know what I know how they see us in an inaccurate way. You know, they they see us as all snowflakes, whatever that is, social justice warriors, whatever that is, is you know like uh, antifa and uh, you know you know feminazi's and you know that they they see us as wanting to uh, have sex with anyone and marry anything. And, you know, it, it, that's how, at least maybe I'm taking a little far, but so we know what we need to tell them, you know, Hey, uh, we're not like that. <laughs> um, feminism, as you know, it is not the way it really is. Uh, you know, let's, let's have a, con-. but what do liberals need to recognize in Republicans? Cause I think whenever I'm talking with people on a lot of our list, cause I've, I've polled them, a lot of our listeners are liberals from around the world, by the way. What do liberals need to recognize in Republicans or what do we need to recognize in ourselves in terms of what distortions do we have of of Republicans? Well, I think it's great. I
1: mean, first of all, I think we need to understand a little bit about, and this is why we, we did a lot of research in the book about understanding, you know, what the brain and the mind does with this information. And we know that Um, When we do begin to identify separately in in tribes that uh, a phenomenon kicks in, which has been referred to as the outgroup homogeneity effect. And that is we tend to think of people in the other tribe as much more similar than we think about ourselves. We We know, for example, on the left, that there's huge differences between people who see themselves as moderate liberals who might be Joe Biden supporters now and people who might be supporting Bernie or Elizabeth Warren. Um, and that's you know that can if we're not careful lead to internecine warfare on the left as it did last time. Um, we know that on the right there are people who are full throated trumpists. Um, and then there are people who, you know, are in pain because they're Republicans and conservatives, but they can't stand him, you know, and, and there, and it's everything in between there as well. And yet, and yet from each side, we tend to see ourselves as homogeneous. We tend to see everybody, liberals tend to, or people on the left tend to see everybody on the right is the same and vice versa. And so I think it's first important for us to understand that there are all kinds of different people on both sides of these equations who who are very uncomfortable but you know one guy said to me look I can't stand Trump um, I wouldn't want him anywhere in my neighborhood, he says, but I just could not bring myself to vote for Hillary Clinton. And, um, and I was raised to believe that the vote is precious and voting for a third party candidate was in, in essence throwing the vote away. So I held my nose and voted for him because in the net, he was the least of the evils. Um, and there are people on the left I know who felt the same way. Um, that person is not the same person as a person who's a full-throated Trumpist in terms of how they feel about a lot of issues that we're talking about. Um, One of the things I found that's really helpful is to watch other media sources to not allow ourselves to be um, stuck in this this bubble um, surrounded only by people who agree with us and so you know I, my feed, for example, on my iPad has Breitbart coming in. It's got Fox coming in. It's got you know um, a couple other sources of generally conservative, as well as the ones that I might naturally gravitate towards too. I reach out on um, on Twitter and engage with people who are conservatives, and I develop some real I would say real friendships with people who disagree. We disagree on the issues, and the issues, as you're saying. Um, but they're decent, good people who just see the world differently than I am. And, and of course, there have been a lot of times when those things have gone up in flames, too, and I've tried to do it, and it just quickly became ugly, and I just said I'm not engaging. Um, but, it, but I find it's worth it to try to do that because every time I talk to my, Paul, my friend Paul now, who's in Florida, and my friend Scott, who's in Chicago, um, about some of these issues, it reminds me that there are good, decent people who just see this very differently than I do. And, and sometimes I can even get from their perspective why it makes sense to them. Now, I have a different perspective, but I can at least understand why it does make sense to them from their perspective. And I think the bottom line is that as, rep- as, as um, people in a democracy, as citizens in a democracy, we have a responsibility to to take care of our own learning in this regard and and just watching the same thing over and over again. And as, as you said, guffawing about it because we, uh, boy, they got them good that time. You know, there's that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a nice cathartic release sometimes, but when it's the hundred percent, you know, content of what you're exposed to every day, when you really begin to believe that Stephen Colbert and the daily show are news, uh, then you're in trouble.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I have a, A friend that I grew up with who is a therapist, and he believes and practices uh, gay conversion therapy, and uh, it's unethical, it's illegal in some jurisdictions, it's abhorrent, uh, it goes against everything that I believe, and I've had debates with him. Mm Mm-hmm. And I've tried to remain calm. It's hard to remain calm in those conversations, but I try. And in the end, it, I, I, I didn't throw my hands up and say, I hate you and go back to your trailer park or whatever stereotype, you know, one would throw right. out or something. This is a great
1: example of the, the wonderful quote from James Baldwin, who once said, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression, denial of my humanity and the right to exist. And I think that I think that that's, you know, there, I'm not suggesting certainly that there are not limits to our tolerance. Um, I think that we have to find times when we all have to know where our line in the sand is and to know, and, and I, like you, um, find it, it often isn't the case when it, when it is, as in that case, the denial of somebody's humanity, the denial that there's something, you know, when you're calling somebody abnormal or sinful um, because of a way they're naturally born. And I really do believe that that. You know, LGBTQ people, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that now, then you're denying their humanity. That's That's over the line in my book. And I'll say to people at a time like that, I won't say that makes you a horrible person, but I think this is an issue that I, I just can't accept. And so, you know, there's no point in our continuing to bat, bat heads with each other. If you're not willing to move on that issue, you know, there's no place we can go from here. But, the, but when we look at it, for the most part, very few issues are that black and white, you know, we look at gun rights, for example, and, and, you know, we've been so polarized around gun rights that there's, that there are very few people who are sitting here saying, all right, let's get our heads together and see what reasonable restriction can we come up with that you can feel comfortable with, but also has me feel safer, you know? Um, and, and when we look at polling... We know that 90 percent of the people or 80 to 90 percent, depending on which poll you look at, want some reasonable gun restrictions. And yet it's the the conversation is being dominated by the extreme, in this case, by the NRA especially. Um, But there are issues on the left that are like that, too, you know, that people are dominated by the extremity. and, And this is the challenge. And I'm not I'm not arguing for moderation or liberalism. Um, Or anything like that my politics are pretty hard left in terms of what I really what I actually believe in But what I'm saying is you can have your politics But also remember that it is a point of view and that there are other reasonable people who have different points of view And maybe if we put our heads together, we can find some place to coexist and and that's what I'm I'm trying to encourage people to do
0: Well, what do you think on just returning to this question? What do you think on the left? Because like I said, you know, we could look at the right and say, hey, uh, a lot of you advocate for and understand that assault rif- rifles shouldn't be uh, so widely sold. Oh, and banana clips full of 50 bullets mm-hmm. is not recreational hunting uh, gear. But that's that's us talking to them saying, come to our side. What do you think? as liberals, we, uh, should be listening and uh, moving in the direction of Republicans a little bit.
1: Well, I think one thing is that we've become, we've become increasingly illiberal. Um, for example, this notion of not wanting people to be allowed to speak, um, on campuses. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a a fervent uh, First Amendment person because, frankly, being a social justice advocate for my entire life—I think I went to my first civil rights meeting 52 years ago today, or something like that. Um, uh, I know that most of the time, when people's rights to speak have been suppressed, it's been people who were on our side of the equation, and and so it doesn't make me happy when I see people. You know, even though I loathe Ann Coulter, for example, you know, I don't agree with anything she says, and I find her pretty you know, pretty unappealing person, you know, I don't believe that she should not be allowed to speak if somebody wants to bring her in to speak. And I think, I think we need to um, watch our own um, calcification um, of our ideas and our, and our thoughts, you know, extreme uh, patterns of political correctness where it gets to the point where people are, are nervous to speak because they don't know how to address, even address issues without using the wrong word at times. You know, I think that, I think that we can begin to look at ourselves and say, where have we... Been forced to polarize, and how can we broaden our view of um, how respectable people and, and decent people might see things slightly different from ours without making them terrible? I mean, we're seeing it already in the campaign, you know. You see, you know, Kamala Harris is no good because when she was a prosecutor, she, oh, my God, prosecuted people. You know, Biden, of course, has his whole history. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren for a while had the, the thing with the Native American identity. I mean, we, uh, Beto, people are down on, we're down on because he took oil money when he was running for Texas, as if there's any other money in Texas besides oil money. You know what I mean? It's like we, we find things to, you know, we, it's almost like we set up this, these, these perfectionist um models and then compare everybody to perfectionism. And of course, ultimately everybody except the person who we believe in fails against that perfectionism. So I think we just have to really open our minds a little bit more understanding other people's points of view.
0: I like your prescription of actually talk to people on the other side of the aisle. Yeah. What and a concept, to know. Huh? <laughs> yeah. But people listening are probably like, yeah, it's a good idea, but I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, Uh, you know, I'm not going to talk to one of those people and uh, which one would I talk to? Or, you know, I've, I've effectively gotten rid of all those people in my life and I don't talk to my aunt anymore because of the things she posts on Facebook. What do you say to those people? Yeah,
1: it's, um, well, I'm, you're right because I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I can't believe you wasted your time talking to over a hundred of those people. You know, it's, it's sad to me to tell you the truth because well, you talk about people with their aunts, for example. I mean, you, know, we, you know, there are thousands of families that have canceled Thanksgiving dinner the last couple of years rather than be at the table with old Uncle Ernie because he voted for somebody different than we did, even though he was your favorite uncle growing up, you know, as opposed to saying, wow, maybe he would be a good person for me to talk to to try to understand because we know we have loved each other. We know we care for each other. And maybe if the two of us could at least understand where we're coming from, um, that there could be some healing there. And, 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 and I think that the sad thing is we are, we're running for the bunker, we're turtling. Um, you know, we're pulling into our shells and only surrounding ourselves with people who who agree with us. And of course, the more we do that, the more it reinforces that anybody with another point of view from us is the other, and the more we contribute to the tribalism rather than do something to stop it. So what I say to people is start with a five-pounder. You know, don't start with a 50-pounder or a 100-pounder. Start with somebody who you know, you really care about and you have some differences, but not, you know, you're not completely on the other side of the equation with. So maybe you talk about an issue like, you know, gun rights, or you talk about, a, you know, an issue like, Whatever it is, you know, something where you feel like it's it's not like a hundred pounder to start with, and start to practice the muscle of listening to each other. And then what you'll find, I think, is that pretty soon you realize it's actually pretty interesting. You know, I can give you one example if we've got just a couple more minutes, Kirk. I was I was asked to do a mediation, and this is around sexual orientation too, between two people who in a public leadership forum here in the Washington DC area had gotten into a conflict because one of them was a gay man, the other was a Um, was an African-American man who grew up in um, a particular scriptural um, church, a very religious church. And he said during the session um, that he he believes that homosexuality was a sin and created a big furor. So they asked me to do a mediation using the technique that I was telling you about. So they started, and the one guy, the gay guy, told his story, which was not an unusual story. He'd come out as a teenager, had pretty good family support, was now with a partner he'd been with for more than 15 years. They had children they had adopted. And he talked about some of the things he'd experienced, but it was not an unusual story particularly. The other guy shared that he grew up in a very poor and very dangerous community here in the Washington, D.C. area, and five of his friends growing up had been killed through gang violence. The only thing that saved him, he felt, was the church and going to church. And so for him, he didn't question the church. It was what kept him alive. And so if his pastor said something, he didn't question it. And just right from that, the other guy could kind of see, wow, if I grew up in that environment and this was so tied to my survival, I could get how I might go there, you know? So already it was sort of softening a little bit. And then they got into the second question and talked about, you know, what it was that they were afraid of. And, you know, the one guy talked about how, you know, if he disconnects from his church, he'd, he'd be groundless and, you know, the other guy shared his obvious fears for himself and his partner and his children, and they got into the third stage where they were talking about things they'd wanted to ask, and that was the big moment where, um, at one point, the, the straight guy asked the gay guy, so when did you decide you were gay? And the gay guy looks at him and says, well, when did you decide you were straight? And the guy says, well, I just was. And the gay guy says, yeah, me too. And it's like the, the straight guy's jaw dropped because he actually got the difference between sexual preference and sexual orientation at that moment. And then the, la- the last part was the most moving where the guy who, you know, who had made the comment said to him at the end, he said, look, I want to apologize to you. He said, first of all, he says, I'm, I'm still not comfortable. I, I still got to get my arms around this. So I can't say my mind has changed. But he said, but I can see now from your perspective how I've participated in listening to jokes that have been hurtful um, to to gay men like you. Um, I've laughed at those jokes. I've even repeated those jokes. And I want you to know I'll never do that again. I apologize to you personally for doing it. I will never do that again. And the two of them then left that session and went and sat side by side in front of the group of 60 people where the original event happened and processed it with them. So so that was pretty miraculous. And And they were the ones who did the work. All I did was ask the question. So I think, I think we, people want to connect. And so if you reach out and find people who want to connect,
0: who want to bridge this barrier, that's where you start. Thanks for joining us, Howard. Hey, it's my pleasure, Kirk. Thank you. His book, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. Well, that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.